they didn't start any pool construction, right? No. All that's left to do is the actual interior of the pool, but I think they have all summer to finish. So. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they have all year. Nobody's going in that pool. So. <laughs> yeah. I think they just want to show that they, they can't let us in there, so they decide to do it now. Uh, they like, don't want to deal with COVID. What's the point of getting the, the pool rebuilt in time? Like, guy, take your time, guys. Slow down. Nobody's going anywhere. I mean, the good thing for me is that, like, that's my view. I, I kind of want the pool filled in. I like that they take good care of it all year. There's never, like, a single leaf in it. I enjoy that. Do you use the pool often? I, I would when it's open, yeah. There's a there, We have a pool here as well, but I've never been in it. Uh, never? I don't, yeah, no. It's It's kind of small. It's like a small pool. Uh, which I'm not as big a fan of. It's also an outdoor pool, which I didn't like. Yeah. Although I was, I was very spoiled. The first apartment complex we had when we lived in Olympia, it was an in. They had a nice big indoor pool, which okay. is which is crazy and nice. They had like everything there. Man, they had a, a racquetball court in that apartment <laughs> complex. <laughs> it's insane. Okay, I think I've got everything ready. Just testing audacity. If you could talk for a sec. All right, test testing. You should try. You should see if you can include that pool talk. I think that was good. Maybe keep that section in. It's a good primer, I think. I think it's what you want from an apartment. You want some kind of pool setting, and um... it's it's definitely a perk. That's why they have them, you know, and like gyms and laundromats and stuff. But definitely pools. You feel fancy if you have a pool. Yeah, I I want pool and I want some woods around. So this covers two of my needs. Well, there are two kinds of podcasts in this world, those who cover Westerns and those who do not. Yeah, uh, that's almost exclusively what we cover once a month anyway. That's that's what exclusive means, right? I think it means every other podcast does like relevant new movies and we cover Westerns. <laughs> <laughs> what, what relevant new movies? Well, I guess there is a lot now. There's a lot of ones today. So that's kind of... Uh, oh, man. We, ha- yeah. we have a lot today. We'll be covering what, like Sputnik, Tesla... Um, Man, uh, we have this Paramount deal, uh, a bunch Ugh. of new movies. Um, so much Boy news. State, I wish, Project Power. I wish they would spread things out a bit more because, what, like last week we were kind of like iffy on the beginning part and then had that good chunk with Sullivan's Travels. But then, like this week, it's like we have so much stuff we might as well not talk about, you know, our select <laughs> movie. But, but damn it, we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, should we begin with the Paramount? That was kind of uh, future. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of shocked uh, that nobody else is really talking about this. I saw like spatterings of discussion on the day, I believe it was Friday, that it was announced uh, this uh, court decision, federal court, uh, rolling back on the uh, major uh, deal made in, or not deal, uh, decision made in 1948 with uh, United States versus Paramount Pictures, which basically broke up studio monopolies and the vertical integration they held over uh, distribution as well of films and made way for independent cinema to really flourish and actually thrive and exist. And now that's going to be gone. And it's kind of hard to determine what the uh, repercussions of that are going to be. But uh, not good is the best I can come up with at the moment. Definitely not good for independent cinemas. Um if you can only buy a studio's movies in blocks, that takes a lot of your determination out of what you can actually show. Right. And that was a, a huge thing with the studio system that was basically entirely 
destroyed. I mean, it took still a while for it to kind of entirely dissipate by like the late 60s. And that's really where we saw the studio system entirely be demolished. But, you know, in the decision in 1948, you saw like incrementally over time how these changes, uh, you know, went into effect and how they could, you know, force studios less and less to show shitty B-movies, which they continue to produce and package together with their big budget A-movies. Uh, and in the, you know, the flip side of that, of course, is then we got the rise of B-movies and, you know, independent theaters, which could show whatever. And so that's where you also get a big flourish of international cinema coming through uh, in, you know, the late 50s and uh, 60s and 70s. And, you know, now that that's being rolled back, uh, I can only assume that, you know, the independent cinemas, which are already taking a lot of heat uh, during COVID here, are just going to end up even worse off because now there's nothing at all, not even a precedent to stop the studios from strong arming, you know, the independent chains as well as whatever ones they choose to buy up and own from just showing their big title films and anything else that they have in their catalog for that year. It matches the times in one way that we have vertical integration on our streaming services, although those don't have to compete so much with independent outfits. So, uh, there's there's a big difference here. Um, what what bothers me most is it shows no value for why we should have a theater. Um, I think that having a theater should be open and free to expression of anything that would want to be shown. Um, and if all the money is coming from possibly um, overseas outlets, and we no longer go to the theaters, then movies can no longer hypothetically influence culture because they're not putting money back into the culture through like a, a physical means. So mm -hmm. it's it's very difficult to see where this will go, but very badly is my idea. And it's already kind of been happening to some degree. And now the floodgates are just going to be really opened. I feel like is, is probably what's going to happen. As you mentioned, like uh, streaming services were never uh, subject to this rule and neither were big studios like uh, Disney, even though, um, you know, they were around during the time in 1948, they weren't part of this court decision. It was mostly the big, big theaters that are big studios that actually owned theaters, you know, like uh, Paramount and Warner brothers and MGM uh, but nonetheless, the precedent was set by that. And so Disney didn't go into, even though there was nothing legally stopping them at the moment from, you know, buying up theater chains and distributing on their own, you know, there was still this policy and, and you know, this uh, established uh, rule that would probably be then directed towards them afterwards. And we saw a little bit of that. Uh, I think it was last year when Netflix bought a single theater in New York, I believe it was. And then yeah, this, the Egyptian this, or something. Yeah, or, or yeah, no, you're right. It was in Los Angeles. It was the Egyptian. Um, and anyway, and then the discussion of this court decision came up again and the actual ramifications and if they can do that and whatnot. And I believe we mentioned on the podcast at one point too, but now that, that uh, ruling has been lifted entirely by uh, the, the federal uh, New York courts. I don't know though, if this has to go to the Supreme Court like the original decision did, it may have to. There hasn't been any further developments since the announcement on Friday. I, I think I read that it's instantaneous. I think it might already be applied. Um, I know there's, there's a there's a two-year sunset period on right. this, this policy that has to go into effect. But basically, uh, you know, there's not going to be any more limitations for big, big corporations, especially someone like Amazon. I can easily see going up and buying up like a struggling theater chain like, say, AMC right now, which is I recording... Could ridiculous losses i think in some way you could look at 
like one or two positives, like maybe Cinerama survives, maybe Disney or Amazon buys Cinerama or something, but mm-hmm. um, I I don't want them to own AMC. I don't want half the screens in America to be Disney movies. I think they already are getting close. So. Well, that's, and that's the thing. And that was the case. So there's been positions like, you know, this, because this ruling didn't affect Disney before they were able to do things like strong arm studios into showing their big, films you know for longer periods of times in the main theater which is something that you know uh other filmmakers have been railing against for a while in their practices this was a big point of of contention for martin scorsese when he yeah. you know he made his interviews you know kind of uh dishing on marvel and such and that was really the issue he was getting at here and now there's there's nothing in the way to really stop them from going even further and you know strangle holding the you know theaters there well, the one thing I also look at is that these studios that were included are no longer the driving force of the industry. Like, uh, of all the big studios, I think Paramount might be the first to close. Like, they could sell off Top Gun and Mission Impossible and then, you know, maybe just settle the rest because I don't see them doing a lot else. Right. Most of the major uh, studios of the Golden Age Hollywood are, are gone, especially with Disney's acquisition of uh, 20th Century Fox. And that also yeah. ties into this in another degree, because that was a huge thing. A lot of uh, repertory theaters, you know, pushed against the deal as well in stating because, and as we've seen now, I saw an announcement today as well that Disney is not going to be licensing any of their films or Fox's library for new 4K uh, physical releases, they're only going to be doing digital releases from here on out, which is uh, insane. It's it's terrible, and that's yeah. true as well for when it comes to films that want to show some of the older films. If you want to show an old uh, Fox film, like say you want to show The Grapes of Wrath, you know you, you're not going to be able to. You can't get a hold of the yeah. the rights to it, and that's a whole issue as well. That's that's gotten glossed over or forgotten about in terms of distribution rights and you know how this deal works with it. Because again, you know part of the issue here is that it. it there's no longer any limitations or there's no power given to the theaters for uh, leasing films on an independent basis. They have to, they they can go back to releasing things solely in blocks. So it's not, you can't pick and choose as a theater, which films you want to show, which are going to be the most profitable for you, what your audience wants to see. It's going to be entirely, you know, dependent on the studio's whims and what they want you to show. I mean, it's, been a negative week like a, a three-way punch to that going with like Mulan going $30 on Disney plus the service we pay for and then the Paramount rule and then we have Disney <laughs> never releasing the abyss we're never going to get that on a physical copy so that dream's dead yeah that that and true lies which are two big yeah. uh james cameron titles that people have been asking for a release for a long time they've only ever been like the furthest it got was to dvd they never even got a blu-ray release let alone a 4k release yeah, and what else? scrapped now we're never getting avatar either so <laughs> <laughs> we might be waiting uh, another 20 years on avatar too but uh there are a few movies that actually exist and have come out this week so Sputnik, really the first uh, Russian space horror movie that I know of that's a large budget movie is operating within the spa- same space as Alien. Um, pretty cool deal for me because uh, that's like within the realm of my interests. Um, I, I didn't feel what I, what I needed to here. I, I think I need something very specific from Alien. I need like the space trucker feeling or some, some grim, grimy aesthetic um, I, I didn't really connect with any of the cast or uh, the CGI alien either. He looked like a wimpy little uh, rodent dog thing. 
that's that's a shame. I've been hearing a bit of clamor around Sputnik. People have been kind of more excited for this than other releases I've seen lately. Yeah. So there's a it's a shame that it didn't shake out as well as you'd you'd hoped for you personally anyway. I think it's fine. I mean, I think it I think it establishes everything else with the lead actress, um, Oksana Akishna. <laughs> she, she does a fine job. Um, I think she's totally competent, and the movie's competent. But we have a lot of American alien types that, um, I mean, we have so many alien films themselves that are so competent. Why wouldn't you want to watch those instead? I'm not sure. Well, I, th- I think the Russian aspect is something of an appeal to people in seeing that cultural aspect, particularly in the, the context of the, the Sputnik idea here and reviving those ideas of the the, the space race in the Cold War and such. Um, you know, does it touch on that any in any significant way? Or I mean, I feel like there's some part that's implicit, but I don't feel like it's that political. Um, but just Russia making a space film ever, it's always going to be in there. Um, all right, all right. You just... It, I think people are still interested in seeing those those ties and stuff yeah. and those, those after effects of the Cold War, which have never really disappeared. Those tensions are still there. Yeah, that's why you'll watch it. I mean, if you're going to watch it, I think it's a, a Russian space horror movie. That's all I need to hear. Mm-hmm. That was already there. So if, if that's enough for you, I mean, for a listener, I think that could be sufficient. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be the big selling point for people and people are, are totally behind that uh but i know you're you're picky about your your horror things as well <laughs> just because i i'm such a hardcore fan of like alien and then like evolutions of that from like species to under the skin and just like that whole feeling that when you show the alien the first time it better be pretty damn impressive like it shouldn't be like a, a cute little cuddly thing that I, I i feel good about having on board um it i mean i'd even rather watch like life which i know not everyone likes but it has a little asshole Calvin alien. So, uh, it's called Calvin. Uh, big fan of that. Uh, also from IFC this week, we have Tesla, <laughs> which I uh, had more interest in once I heard that uh, Michael Almerea, the director, he um, said it's inspired by Drunk History, which is that Comedy Central show, which kind of riffs on history and presents it as a more comical, farcical thing than you would expect. Uh, I thought that was a weird thing to do with Tesla, especially if you're putting in uh, Ethan Hawke and Kyle MacLachlan in the movie. I think you went down there from there. Co- coincidentally, I actually watched a little bit of Drunk History this week as well. Uh, I was kind of spurred to watch the episode with uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda doing uh, the whole Hamilton thing because I still can't stop watching Hamilton, even though I talked about it last week. How many times has it been now? Uh, you know, it's, it's only been a couple times for the film, but uh, the soundtrack is just endlessly on repeat around the household and at work. Can't throw away it's, my shot and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I don't know much about drunk history. I've tried to watch a few times. It seems fun, but I, I just thought it was such a strange, strange premise. And from the director of Marjorie Prime, which I really loved on Amazon, um, that was like a film about memory. And that's something I really attached to, of course, like since I lost so much memory for a stretch of period that, uh, just the way we remember people and how we could kind of bring them back to life. Um, I'd really want to recommend that film. Uh, just like, how do we deal with the deaths of people we love if we could like uh, recreate an AI that, that keeps them around? Uh, that was a special movie. I don't know what this is. Um, I don't know if Tesla is a special movie. Uh, 
It has them having like a ice cream fights and rollerblading around their inventions. Uh, it is very drunk history. That's uh, interesting. I think it's also interesting that we just got this after another biopic talking about Edison and uh, Tesla going head to head. What was that? The current war, which kind of unceremoniously yeah. dropped last year. I think it was. Yeah. The year before. I don't know. It was not at all kind of given a chance and it didn't seem like it was much more than a mediocre you know rendition of uh the the conflict there and uh do you, do you feel like this is any did you watch that one by the way um i don't remember if i did i don't think so i watched so many movies within any given year but i remember what the current war was about mm-hmm. well and it's and it seems like you're kind of tepid on this one as well um if you go watch it for anything watch for um Ethan Hawke singing Everybody Wants to Rule the World as uh, Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> like the Tears for Fears song? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> with a, with lightning in the background and like a, a bad green screen behind him. Oh, that I don't know how to feel about that. That sounds both like wonderful and like cringy at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that, that describes what I saw here. Um, I, I, it, it's weird though, because I mean, I like the premise. I like the idea of seeing Ethan Hawke, Hannah Gross together. I like Kyle McLaughlin and everything. Of course, my <laughs> yeah, my Twin Peaks fandom shows. Um, I, it's it's fine. I I'm, I'm I, also kind of curious about this idea because there's been so much revisionism in history re- result revolving around Tesla and putting him yeah. back in the history books, like where he belongs, and like the fanaticism around him. It's it's yeah. kind of like. I think it's odd. Like now it's like, all right, now we've fanboyed Tesla too much. We need to back off a little bit here. I think we peaked with David Bowie and the prestige. <laughs> I think it gets to play like in that space of imagination. I think that's what it's taking from like drug history is that, that we could do something funny here and we can make fun of that fanaticism around Tesla and kind of have a good time with that. Well, um, you know, there are better Ethan Hawke performances. You could, you could look at the truth or, uh, um, first reform the last couple of years he's done some stuff mm-hmm. or or you could watch him sing everybody wants to rule the world with I mean, at least at least get a youtube clip from this at some point i mean that that's kind of essential that, that I, sounds like a very memeable moment i'm expecting uh you know in the next couple months here to see it plastered all over the internet also coming up later this week uh, we have a few advances this time this is nice uh, these last two movies and project power from netflix um which is about a pill that circulates around New Orleans that gives people five minutes of superpowers. Uh, I think Marvel has a show called Powers. It's kind of a takeoff. Or they have a, a comic book called Powers. It's kind of a takeoff on that. It sounds very gimmicky. You know, that, that sounds like one of those weird, like, ask Reddit questions. Like, what would you do if you could have superpowers for five minutes at a time? Like, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I'm not, I'm not on board with that as much as I would, I would like to be. I mean, it tries to connect it to, like, social commentary. Um, oh, no. The young girl, uh, Dominic Fishback, is okay. And it's talking about, like, what powers are, like, keeping her down and empowering yourself and what it means to empower youth. Uh, there's a few things there, like, in the spec script, I'm sure. But this was shot in 2018, and it shows. Like, oh. it's been two years trying to arrange a movie out of really flimsy idea, and it didn't quite work. Speaking of uh, superhero movies that have been sitting on the shelf for an extended period of time, did you see that New Mutants is getting a release date? Oh, God. Is it? Yeah, this month, this, this month supposedly. 
uh, are in theaters, no less. Oh, it's in theaters because it's Fox. They can't release it on video on demand <laughs> <laughs> because it's got the uh, the contractual deal. I'm sure. Maybe that's maybe that's why they're just finally they're throwing it out there to die, like they know it's going to anyway. And then they can yeah. point, they can point to the pandemic and say, no, no, it's a failure because people couldn't go see it, not because it's terrible. <laughs> And also drop any news you don't want people to talk about on a Friday, and we're still going to find it because we're better at this. So. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah, Project Power. Don't watch it. It's going to be on Netflix. <laughs> I see. I mean, it's got some names to it with yeah. Amy Fox and Joseph Gordon-Levitt's back acting. Like, didn't he also do like a French airplane movie recently? Yeah, German or French, some flight movie that we just covered a couple weeks ago. Um, Jamie, that was also stalled for a couple of years, I believe. I think that was also like a 2018, 2019 thing. So, um, so what you're saying is Joseph Gordon-Levitt has been acting just, you know, two years ago, and now he's finally back into the fold. Yeah, the the mutants of future past. <laughs> uh, Jamie Foxx, I always like. I like him in Django. Ray's okay, um, so he's he's fine here. It's it's just like it's just like they took pieces of a movie and couldn't fit them back together in any meaningful way, like. We have a revelation halfway through about Jamie Foxx's daughter, and the movie could have mattered to us if it put that up front, but it's way, like, mid-half end of the movie, and why should I care now, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just, I'm also, I'm sure, like, many people exhausted of, like, the most niche superhero premises you can come up with at this point. Like, I'm just ready to to move on, Uh, you know, kind of done with the escapist fantasy, you know, Greek mythological crap yeah i think that's fair since there's been a couple hundred the last 10 years i gotta ask do you think marvel might be on its way out maybe that's just me like you know wishful thinking with like the the pandemic delaying everything you know into the ground but like you know they already set themselves up for a little bit of failure with like the huge time you know between the significant film like they don't really have a next clear starting point like they had that next Spider-Man movie, which yeah. didn't lead to much. It was like a one-off thing. And then Black Widow is supposed to be the next thing, and it's going back in time to tell a story. So not really progressing the narrative of the franchise forward any. So And, and with all of this delaying things even further and pushing Marvel more and more out of the zeitgeist, do you, do you think it might be done for? I don't know what purpose those have outside being event movies. And if there are no movie events anymore, I don't know what they do. I, I think it's just a Disney Plus thing, and People will always watch Marvel. So um, don't we have, it. yeah, there's supposed to be like a billion shows of Marvel shows coming as well. Like Cap, like, like, the, like the, the Falcon and yeah. Winter Soldier thing. And then there's the WandaVision one, which looks really weird. The Peanut Butter Falcon and Wanda. <laughs> uh, uh, speaking of empowering youth, we had Boys State, which is a movie that I'm really fired up about. And I feel is really fucking cool this year. Yeah, your your review was uh, emphatic, to say the least. Uh, so it's just about a thousand young boys in Texas, and they, they um, pile them all up, and they take them out to uh, do a, a little bit of politicking. And uh, they all come in with their own beliefs, but then they have to structure themselves around their parties. So we get federalists and nationalists. Uh, the filmmakers took a big risk because they followed like four or five boys, and they just like struck lightning with them because they're the boys that went further and it builds a cohesive narrative. It feels like a film. Uh, you'll know it because it was sold for $10 million at Sundance, which is a record for documentaries. Wow, that's uh, fantastic. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure this one's going to make your documentary list 
uh, for the end of the year because you were you were enthusiastic as hell about it. I yeah, will you sign my uh, petition to uh, vote it in for documentary of the year? <laughs> I, I'm already petitioning for the Oscars, and I you know I I want this out there. I don't see what else could win. I mean, Last Dance seems like a series. Uh, all the other things I watch are so special interest. Uh, by November, this is going to be like the fucking movie of the year. I could see it on those lists. Mm-hmm. Well, can you tell me a little more about it and what makes yeah. it so uh, relevant today? Yeah, there's a boy, Stephen, who goes to like March for Our Lives events. He's like a huge civil rights activist. He's descended from uh, Mexican immigrants. So uh, he has like all these principles and he goes into this gubernatorial race and he has to set up a campaign where it's like... Um, okay, but I'm going to try to play to the party, but I also have my own beliefs. And he's like the one guy who's extremely honest. And then there's uh, this other guy, Renee, who's just an intelligent, fantastic speaker. Like these two boys, they're so special, like amongst a field of uh, just chaos. Like the other boys here are like talking about how good Trump's campaign was. And uh, they learned everything from politics, from like make America great. They're like, that's all you want from a slogan. You want a short, punchy, and you want to like attract attention and shock people. It, it's it's a fucking horrifying movie. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, yeah, there's there's some truth to that. Like the slogan caught on with good reason. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, I, I saw two Keep America Great hats today when I was, at, or not today, but the other day when I was at work and I kind of just like <laughs> look, looked away and walked off. Like it's, it's very weird to see it a very, liberal populated area like very very rarely does that come up but anyway uh yeah i mean i i guess it, it was successful the campaign was successful in a myriad of ways and yeah. you know you can analyze that but i don't know if that's something you want to aspire or mold yourself after it's uh i mean personally i see i see why a group of youths in texas aspire after that and mold themselves in that way but it's it's very disheartening yeah to to see that (laughs) just the way that they present information the year before the major movement of the winning party was for texas to succeed for the from the country so succeed yeah yeah succeed and you realize that there's uh that's that's been been texas's thing since they got in you know into the union though to begin with they've been talking about leaving which they never will no one is seceding and it's not like a, a useful or a very good political position. So you see how they have to play to popularity here. Um, they have to play to what Texans want. They're always talking about gun rights. So when this boy, Stephen, uh, he plays for the nationalists. Uh, uh, you're just assorted to one team, Federalists or Nationalists. So he's uh, trying to run for the nationalist uh, governor. And uh, just you, you see how people are like forming racist memes around him and Ren- Renee, and that becomes their platform. They share it on like the Instagrams and uh, and how it actually impacts the voting party. It's it's terrifying microcosm of what U.S. politics actually are. Yeah, and obviously you can see that. Like, I, I don't think the uh, you can overstate the influence of the last four years on the American political spectrum. Like too much like it's it's really uh such a significant change even in like it was an immediate change too and it only just got worse and you know more concrete over time uh and you know racism is really boiled over as a major political issue in our country it's it's so frustrating and enraging to see i mean it's really got me worried about the people who feel inspired by trump and the people that want to get into government next that don't necessarily want to change things but we're 
uh, somehow impressed by this system and want to perpetuate that. Yeah. And again, so, so many flaws in the system and cracks and how things, you know, can get, get by and corruption can just seep into every facet has been revealed, you know, on, on such a ridiculous degree. Not that we didn't know about these aspects before, but, you know, it's just, it's become more inflated as we've gone on, you know, just, you know, five, six years prior, people always talked about how Bush was the, the blight on the, you know, presidential spectrum here, you know, but as we've gone back and seen that this has been a more long withstanding problem and so many presidents, you know, can compete with Trump in terms of their racism and corruption. I mean, have you heard much about boys state? I was pretty blank on like what that actually was before I, before I really dug in. No, no, I I haven't heard about it neither as a, a, a concept or the documentary. I hadn't heard about it before you brought it to the site here. It was shocking to me, like, how many people have been through it that we know. You know, like, Roger Ebert, the film critic, was a Boy State member. Uh, Bill Clinton, uh, Bo Biden, um, Tom Brokaw, I'm, I'm running out of memory. <laughs> Rush Limbaugh, um, Michael Jordan. That one doesn't surprise me. Rush Limbaugh yeah. doesn't surprise me there. there. There's a whole list of conservatives that won't surprise you that, that went through there. And they're mainly the ones making noise right now. Right, but the way you phrase it well doesn't sound like it's necessarily a, a racist institution. It's just more perpetuated yeah. that way by the current political landscape. It does sound more like a, you know, a political invigorating environment for, uh, you know, Texan youths. And Texas, yeah. again, like t- Texas is not like a, a bastion of racism or anything like that. It, it doesn't have to do with that. They also have like them, some in like New Jersey and they're spread around the states, but this is the one they focus on. And it's just such a fascinating perspective to get that isolated image. Uh, one of the boys that was going to run against Steven, he, he had all these personal beliefs and he was the opposite way. He believed in free, freedom of choice and everything. And then he went, went against it for the party. Like you see how these boys at like a, at a coming of age kind of story where they change and morph into uh, men that we, that are kind of perpetuating bad values. So, uh, learning to compromise their ideals to, you know, further climb in the in the system that's been yeah. set before them. Yeah, it, I mean, it's dangerous. It's scary. Uh, it's it's funny to look back to. Like I looked at the year uh, Bill Clinton ran and he lost. So you never <laughs> know what's going to happen. Yeah, well, and this thing is that, you know, of course, because the, the landscape changes as well, you know, in time. So hopefully that's that's also true of people who want to hear like the opposite in the case of like all of the, you know, racist Trump memeing kids who, you know, yeah. capitalize on the, you know, movements of, of currently right now and the, you know, aggressive uh, aspects of the Republican Party don't succeed in the same vein if, if we can push the needle to more to the progressive side in these next few elections and such. Um, and if we're going to cut off any territory, make it the Northwest. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll be the ones to secede more than anyone, I think, and like be successful. I don't know how <laughs> Texas could manage on its own. Like it's it's big land wise, but like yeah. you know, how are you going to stimulate your economy? You can't <laughs> you can't exist off of you know giant ten gallon hats and you know uh, Mexican cuisine. All that's the there. Entire state. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but this is the watch of the week. I think this is our movie of the week, which we should probably be doing. <laughs> well, well, we, we do okay. have an. Are, are you sure? Because the movie of the week we actually picked out for this week is like your favorite movie, or at least one of them. I think uh, for this slate of new movies, this is the pick. I, I'd like everyone to see Boys State eventually. All right. Well, uh, 
as, as usual, I will watch everything that you recommend to me on this podcast. <laughs> of uh, course. Post haste. Uh, Five dollars on Apple Plus will get you this one. So I mean, it's it's a pretty easy way into. Well, for the movie of the week, I think you do still want to talk about this. You don't want to close the show yet, do you, Kelvin? I closed it on Boy State. I'm done. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, I guess uh, everyone who came here to hear Calvin's emphatic opinions about the good, the bad, and the ugly is going to be disappointed. Sorry, guys. We'll be back next week with something less interesting. I'm sure. Uh, no more Western podcasts for us from now on. Calvin is only going to talk about political documentaries uh, <laughs> revolving around youths in the current landscape. The only thing that matters right now. Um, yeah. You're, you're going to run out of content really fast. Just Yeah, you know. I'm already out, by the way. Uh, <laughs> maybe we should do this Western just to uh, stimulate some content. All right, I guess. I mean, it's not really relevant to anything in the world right now, so who gives a shit? No. But sure, we'll talk about... Probably the most famous and recognizable Western ever, still. Uh, definitely my favorite of all the Westerns. Uh, this is probably my thousands watch. Nothing has changed. My appreciation just grows. And it's one of those movies I sit there and I think, uh, of course, I'm in love with cinema because I watch this over and over. And this is one of those reasons why. Yeah, the one that goes wah, 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 wah. That's the, the one that we're talking about today. Fuck the Washington Post. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was awful. But at the same time, uh, it does speak to something uh, about the film and that that score, that opening, the entire uh, Morricone aspect of it is so iconic and inseparable from uh, the culture at large here that it really does, uh, you know, kind of take on a legacy of its own. Now more than ever, I think. Now more than ever, Maricone sounds so big and monolithic within this movie, and it sounds like it's establishing a style. Um, and you can see the threads from the other ones, and they're fantastic, too. Like, for a few dollars more, I'd rather listen to outside the movie, as you said. Um, but this one, just inside the movie, it feels so big, and it feels so central, and it is the theme. Yeah. And it is the motif. It's so good. It's it's such a triumphant and powerful score, whereas something like we said with the uh, for a few or a fistful of dollars is much more like atmospheric in in oh, some yeah. ways, uh, which is kind of hard to describe it as because it's also very you know uh, loud and, and boisterous as well. But this one is definitely like uh, you know it's the Morricone score. Uh, you know, though I think favorites or bests can differ depending on your personality. But I think it's undeniable that this is the most recognizable, the most iconic, uh, and the most impactful overall. Before it felt like he was making movies for Morricone store scores. Here it feels like they're in like complete yeah. conjunction, and they understand each other so well, and they're maximizing all of that right now they're really inseparable. The music informs the movie, the movie informs the music. Uh, they're really intertwined. The light motifs are all complementary. Uh, you know, the composition is a composition of uh, visual and oral. It's not just, you know, the two working together. They're, they're literally inseparable, I believe. Yeah, it, it feels good. I mean, everything about it feels right. I mean, with Maricone passing too, it feels more significant to me in some way. Uh, just because I spent my whole life listening to this and uh, just because it transforms so much of my interests, I realize how much gratitude or maybe debt that I owe to Maricona. Mm -hmm. Generally, I find that the, this film, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, uh, is the first Western that people generally uh, 
you know resonate with like if somebody says i don't like westerns that much if you show them this it's it's kind of hard for them to deny how great it is and the, the they're caught up in the stylistic you know flurry of it the the transcendent music you know the laconicism of uh, eastwood and how funny it is like i think it's often overlooked or at least not stated enough that this film is really funny and uh, yeah. largely because of like a Eli Wallach as well and the interactions the the chemistry between the the two main leads there I mean you have to kind of build Eli Wallach first because if you look at Eastwood he has like 10 times less the dialogue and his character is so stoic and masculine and it's uh well Tuco just talks too much like he has 10 times more dialogue because he can't stop talking and he can't mm-hmm. stop giving himself away well, and he's and he is much more, I think, the central character. But not that Eastwood gets swept aside. Say, and like uh, that—that that was one thing I said about for a few dollars more is that Lee Van Cleef really does like overshadow Eastwood there. And I don't think that Eli Wallach overshadows him so much as he just kind of takes the the more central uh, role. But it really is like it's a—it's the both of them through most of the film. It's—it's it's like a buddy film, like a buddy uh road trip movie but also like you know a uh, treasure hunt film I, I, w- I would say this might be like the best treasure hunt movie like uh, other than like uh i also think about treasure of the sierra madre of course yeah i mean i'd put this over that I, I just i love this movie i think thematically that one might make the most sense as a treasure hunt movie but i i like everything about this right as far as just like a pure like adventure you know exploration film like this one really is so much more of an adventure film almost than a western like i'm almost uh uncertain about calling it a western because the themes there aren't as uh central or as of importance but that doesn't make it not a western necessarily you know you know what i mean yeah i I don't quite understand that i I feel like it's thoroughly a western well, I just mean it like from from a thematic level and the ideas it deals with. It's, I think it's much more, it leans into its adventurous uh, aspects and it's more like a journey than it is dealing with the, the ideals of Western archetypes and such. It's Again, the not, Italian Western. <laughs> right. I mean. well, well, it's not that it's not there. It's just like the, the adventurous aspect and the, and the fun and the, the hunt and the quest aspect is so much more pervasive, I find, for this than one. Than the Western aspect. Yeah, and like like on a thematic level, you know. Sure. Um, I, I just love this idea of the West. I love that what Sergio Leone does as an outsider. I, I love his feeling about it. I know we're going to disagree about the Civil War, <laughs> so we might as well do that now. Sure, I sure. Like, if you want to get it out of the way. I, I, again, let me, let me make this clear, because we, we did kind of go a little back and forth in watching this. I, I like the Civil War stuff. I think it's very well done. I'm, try, I, I'm trying to think of a better film in which like the Civil War is like depicted. There in, in general, but, well, yeah. and, and, unless you want to look at ones that are more about the Civil War themselves, but as like a, a peripheral element, you know, it's really great, well designed. I just don't find it like emotionally connects with the narrative as much on, per- personally for me. You know, I just find that so hard to believe. <laughs> I, I, well, for me, it's so connected. I I feel like at worst there's a, a second film in here, and it is a derivation of like Bridge Over River Kwai. I mean, that could. That could be in there. That could be a complaint. Yeah, for like the one part towards the end, it d- definitely homages Bridge on the River Kwai, uh, I think, yeah. in, in an aspect. But it's uh, it, the, the big thing is that I find that it just ends up feeling like a roadblock at times, a very wonderful and emotional, you know, and a resonant roadblock, uh, sure, but one that's not, that it doesn't really affect the characters in, in too much of a significant way. It's not intertwined with their plight, uh, 
which is what I would really love to see uh, instead. I feel but like it's... it so is because I I feel like for me the the whole thing is it signals like another morality where um, a man with no name could come in and it's like the crux of all the themes combined where they could obtain a new costume and become someone new that this series with men who can change and shift their names, they could become a Confederate or a Union soldier at like the drop of a hat, literally. They could they could pick up a new hat and, and take on this new identity and they could become someone new. I mean, that is the whole movie and that is why they're able to like go seek this gold because they're able to establish new identities on the fly. I don't, I don't know. I don't see identity as being a, a big theme of the film or any way, or just like the, really? like, like I said, I'm... yeah. And, well, and, uh, and themes in general, they feel, you know, uh, any, I, I don't see it as being very significant in this. It's so much more of an adventure movie to me, you I, know, with great characters. Like based reading though. Like that's like the most obvious part. Is that... Well, and that's what I see. I, d I don't see it go much deeper than that. Again, like I, I like the civil war depiction in the background. I like seeing the turmoil of it and the, the senselessness of the violence and the hurt of you know the the brotherly warring yeah. going on there but it just i you know it seems like it's not reflective or intertwined with the relationship of tuco and the search uh, and, and blondie and search for the gold and such it just it feels like i said peripheral to it um and again i, I enjoy all that stuff i just wish that there was more interconnected in a more significant way for me and I just feel like it's about concealing your past anyway. Like it, it sets up so much for Tuco and such high stakes for him to leave that uh, for me, I think it just makes a lot of sense to deal with the past in a way we haven't quite seen with an Italian director going into the Civil War of America. I think that's fascinating. And basing it on like Spanish hills with like sweeping cemeteries and like these it, like spaces we've never seen in a John Ford film. It's so unique. I mean, it's so special to see that in a Western. I, I will say Tuco does have the most like emotional arc aspect. There's a, there's a small moment between him and his priest brother. And that, that has a very uh, resonating uh, conflict there for him, but it's not touched on too much after that sequence. Um, you know, so, so I guess like more of that. And if I saw that idea of identity reflected a little bit more, uh, you know, or intertwined as like something like uh, his, you know, the follow-up film Once Upon a Time in the West deals with it and the idea of, uh, you know, a, a lack of identity, so to speak, and the kind of man with no name aspect or harmonica. Uh, and again, it's not like a huge, you know, issue on the film. It's just like a slight thing. I'm like, I wish these things were more connected because the Civil War stuff is so great and the, the adventure stuff and the gold stuff and the characters are so great and the score is so triumphant and transcendent. You know, I would just love to see that one component weaved in just a touch more. Um, I, it, everything works for me. It all combines in a cohesive way for me. I, I guess I don't feel the issue that you do, but I understand that you do. Yeah, and that's great. Uh, you know, it's it certainly, again, I still think it's one of the, the best Westerns of all time. It is on my best Westerns list, if you recall. You know, it's also on my now in first place. <laughs> again, <laughs> when, we had our, when we had our Once Upon a Time in the West podcast, you let it uh, come out over the good, bad, and the ugly, but now it's going to keep swapping back and forth, I guess. <laughs> I hadn't even added it in yet. I was waiting to get here. Um, but but I, I was at a point where I was like, is this actually the best one? Uh, then I watch this and I think, absolutely not. There's nothing as nostalgic or cool or interesting to me as this movie. I, I love every piece of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, mean, I love that movie. That's like perfect craft. Once upon a time in the West. That's like Leone showing everything he's learned and just a master craftsman at work.
Right. It's really hard, I would think, for anyone. To, like, I, I won't fault anyone for picking the good, the bad, and the ugly over Once Upon a Time in the West. But I think you, you have to make the argument that they are effectively on the same level to some degree. <laughs> like, you're, you're almost putting... I mean, here on a technical favorite. level, I think you could say so. I, I yeah. just think what this film has done and, like, what it stands for. And like you say, this could bring someone into the genre. Like, I mean, it's accessible to the West. Mm-hmm. And it and already is, like, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is also a film on an epic scale. Like, he only took it to an even higher degree uh, of a thematic level. I don't know if you could even say necessarily on a, like you said, on a technical level, Once Upon a Time in the West isn't necessarily larger. It does, I think, flesh out its its characters a little bit more and themes, uh, and that's why I end up liking it more. But generally, I think you've got to view them on the same plane, whereas, you know, like you see the progress from, you know, Fistful of Dollars, and it's just, you know, it's kind of, like you're watching two totally different kind of films at this point where the, the progress in his uh, Leone's filmmaking ability is, you know, just unbelievable in this short span of time over these three films. Absolutely. Um, what I think Eastwood accomplishes a lot for me too. <laughs> this is, this is the best uh, Eastwood like version of this character, this man with no name, this Western hero archetype. I would say this is the best iteration of it. This laconic, you know, uh, unspoken you know uh anti-hero would you say it's just like the best version of eastwood also i'm i'm trying to think of a better one off the top of my head like maybe you can talk about unforgiven as being yeah you know good in that camp but a a different character for sure um i mean gran torino of course good but i don't think it's anywhere close no well, well gran torino is basically the best version of you know get off my lawn old man you know iteration of, it, yeah. of anyone but it's not it's not a very uh, as as rich of a character i think even though he's got some more thematic aspects to him again nobody is uh, on the same level of like like coolness necessarily like we've got like a short list of really great you know cool actors we got bogart and we got robert mitchum and you got eastwood in there and and it doesn't get much better than that i think eastwood's just like in a way that i can understand and respond to i mean I think those other guys are great, but that's like another era for me, and I don't, I don't relate to that like sense of cool. Like, I've never met someone who acts like that or talks that way, and it right. actually pulls it off. And is it like a giant like douchebag wearing like they, a fedora they, or some shit? They yeah. would be very anachronistic. Like you would, you would look at them very oddly if you saw right. Humphrey Bogart walking down the streets today. Whereas but Eastwood, if you saw someone like leaning with their hip out with like a, a six shooter on their belt or something, you'd be like, that guy still looks cool. <laughs> Yeah, I, I definitely get it because that gruff persona of his kind of still feels relevant in, in many ways, you know, uh, though I, I have to admit I would be ecstatic if I saw Humphrey Bogart <laughs> on the street. You would. Uh, there's a lot of them. They're just, uh, they're just a lot bigger and have strange fedoras now. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but no, he he's definitely like his best in terms of his characters here. He's very kind of like uh, smarmy in ways. He, he's got great yeah. quip, quips in the film. And like I said, I think a lot of it is propelled by his pr- uh, rapport with Eli Wallach here. Whereas, like I said, in Few Dollars More, he gets a little overshadowed in some ways by Lee Van Cleef, who's doing a similar thing to Eastwood there and just seems to be doing better in that particular film. Whereas here, the the comic and feisty personality of Eli Wallach complements the the coolness and laid back composure of Eastwood. I mean, he's kind of a fool, but it, it's he's a very funny fool too, and he plays into it so wonderfully that uh, I I mean, you really believe in his character, and you believe in this three sided die that the throwing. Yeah, and and they all have very great 
introductions and many points throughout the films character defining moments you know uh when eli wallach like you know is introduced by jumping out of the you know the window the store window with a gun in one hand and a turkey leg in the other that's a great defining moment for him or when he like comes back from the desert and he's assembling his gun from all the different pistol parts and like you know kind of fiddling around with everything that's always a moment that sticks out in my mind for him uh and and of course you've got the great bit with them like you know the the uh the game that where, where he's shooting him down like you know they're they're he's yeah. reward money Get, he gets up to the noose there and, and eastwood shoots him down from there i love how they read out so many offenses he's committed because <laughs> they've obviously done this about 30 40 times because because they have so many offenses that he's made and they just keep doing the same thing and, and if you hear them. them, if you hear them, they're terrible. They're awful. No, they're bad. Yeah. But no, it is funny. And, and they do it a couple of times, this gimmick, before you get uh, Eastwood's introductory card with the, the good there. But it's done different in a couple of ways. Of course, when he like misses or doesn't get it quite right the first time and, uh, you know, or, or, or on the second iteration and Wallach is just hanging there. He's just, broken like, part of the rope. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the horses run off. Do you think he did that on purpose? Because they discussed that right before. And I never quite figured out if that was like an intentional, like just nudging him. That, that one feels like a slip to me. But at yeah, the maybe. same time, would it be in Eastwood's character to slip and miss the rope? You know, uh, there, there's no other time where you get the sense that he would be inaccurate in right. any scenario. So. Maybe it's part of it psychological that he discussed yeah. missing, and so he does for the one time he doesn't believe in the shot. And and then that's basically when he turns it in, where it's like, well, I think three thousand dollars is probably the best you're going to be worth. So he abandons him in the desert. And then you wonder the whole time: Is Eastwood really good? Like up until the ending, when when you get like a repetition of that shot, and oh, we'll that's get there. That's the funny thing is that when when you get the title cards, they introduce them all: the ugly, the bad, and then when the good comes up, it's it's an uh, an ironic <laughs> title card. Yeah, it is because he. Like we've had this long, lengthy introduction sequence with two of these, you know, hanging gimmicks going on, and he and he's proclaimed to be the good out of them after he <laughs> abandons Eli Wallach in the desert to die. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's not like a morality tag there. It's just, I mean, it's just putting plates on a title card at that point. Well, and it shows again, like this this overarching theme of the Italian Martians in general is that the good guys of the west were never really that good you it's know it's becoming morally ambiguous rather than like the john wayne this is the best guy in the world yeah again it's the, it's the romanticism of the west is uh stripped away to a certain degree at least in terms of the morality of its uh you know saviors so to speak even though he's the designated good of the bunch and he does what's right overall he he still does so in bad and selfish ways he still seems to be a bounty hunter either way, right? Like, it, I mean, he's not like a sheriff in town or something. No. He's still fucking over the town every time they try to hang this how, guy. How many sheriff central films are spaghetti westerns? Like, I can't think of anything None. like about a sheriff. They're all like bad dudes rolling into town, fucking shit up and, you know, making their money and leaving. The sheriff always dies if there is one. I, I can't think of any where the sheriff survives and ends up the good guy. Yeah, or, or they're sometimes like incompetent or whatever. Like, he, the... In, I remember in like the Great Silence, they've got the sheriff yeah. there's coming. He's he's just like a total like loser. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking of specifically. I, they they don't respect the law in this way. Uh, it makes sense for Italy. Mm -hmm. I know, and, and but Eastwood is probably the best version of that kind of character still. And you know, I don't think he ever got got it better than this did. Uh, and and the material is just so well 
suited for them. I think Eastwood and Frank Nero have always been my favorite of this archetype. Um, I know how you feel about like Django's and everything, but like a well, I still Man. like I still like Franco Nero. It's just again yeah. like the film itself uh, felt a little derivative to me. But I, I would see more Kioma is one that appeals to me. Uh, I'm, I'm if only because I like Woody Strode a lot, and I want to see him in that. Yeah, uh, Kioma, one of the one of the great operatic overwrought theme songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, this does that a lot too, and it plays so wonderfully. I mean, Maricone really moves this along. Without that music, I, I don't know how I could like this movie. Right. Oh, and more than that, there's there's I think two outstanding tracks in particular that really resonate from the film and and have uh, well, kind of overcome all else. There's uh, of course the really famous one, which I'll talk on. Touch on a sec, but there's a the what's I think it's called Soldier's Fortune, which yeah. is the one that plays at the the Union camp when they're, uh, you know, like beating the hell out of Eli Wallach to try and get him to tell him about the the gravestone. I mean, it's just all story, so good. story of a soldier is what it's called. My bad. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was a that's another moment where I kind of sat up and I was thinking about just how interesting it sounded, what it was, you know, uh, I. I put like a, I put the ecstasy of gold in my wedding because I like it so much at the end there. So I mean, it, it's valuable. Right. Well, that that's the other major major composition of the film, and that one has also gone on to transcend the film and become an icon of its own. And and it comes at such a fantastic moment too, where you get that big reveal of the like impossibly stretching, you know, gravesite uh, there as the the music kind of boils up i hope you can sneak the the song into somewhere here and here because it's just so great uh and it it really does feel like a a build to like this big climax here like you finally reached it it does feel like this revelatory moment of of musicality and that they've finally found their destination they've been searching for the whole time and it is this grandiose you know locale that you know the the score uh, purports it to be it's the most amazing graveyard. <laughs> like uh, it is uh, as a uh, Spanish army like compiles like this thing on this hillside. They they go far. Like they didn't have to do half of this. Like in a western, you usually get like the grave scene up on a hill, and then you're like overlooking a town or some shit, and it's like one person gets buried by a tree or something. You know, it's like nothing ever goes to this extent, and it's it's gorgeous. The production design is definitely one of the most major in- increases in quality of this film, and it is so fantastic and grand uh you know not only in terms of like the the civil war aspect but especially in that grave site you really see it you know come to its you know peak fruition uh and you know it it really makes the most incredible use of the giant wide format uh that they go here the aspect ratio for the film is extremely stretched to to a point where you with those iconic close-ups that you get in Leone films cut off like half the face on the yeah, top and do. bottom there. But, but that adds to the style of course as well. But really like when you use a format that wide, you want to see the breadth of the setting and that, that cemetery sequence where we see it for the first time is exactly the way you want to utilize such a wide format. I like, I like how daring it is to go wide and close though. I, I think it's such a style exercise just to do that it's, and yeah. to build up the tension because you know they can't shoot when the frame's in close. So well, and it's such a, it's such a great uh, confident use of that as well. And, you know, to, you know, there, there's cases where if you do use a giant wide format, like 
generally it's not advised to go in so close, but this is where it's used excellently. Like because it is so tight and, you know, and it cuts off things so intensely, it does help to build the tension and get even closer like that. Uh, you know, and the, the of course the, the iconic climax is the, the epitome of that idea and uh, amazing sense of editing in building tension for an extended period of time as the soundtrack mounts even more and more goes on for like minutes on end you know just continually building and building until a brilliant climactic finish i i mean that's just where every part really contributes where we have all three actors doing amazing jobs and everyone i mean the camera you got the music the best at any music's ever been in a western like this is the western moment for me like this is when someone says western this is all i think of like this is my only visual that comes to mind other it's, than like you know john wayne in a doorway yeah. this is next yeah oh and it's not only the best you know climax or shootout of any western film it's just one of the best face-offs in any movie <laughs> it is ever. yeah this is this is the standoff of films, you know, and, and nothing I can think of comes close to like, you know, replicating that feeling because it is so mounting. It, I mean, the only other thing is like, you know, oh, the beginning of Once Upon a Time in the West also <laughs> does this. So I was like, oh, great. Leone did it twice. Well, it's <laughs> kind of like the movie just continues at that point. Like, uh, where, where does everyone go? And it's like, this is another city here that could exist within this place. Mm -hmm. And it, it is such a, just a, again, a, the brilliant best climax you could possibly imagine. And that's what, again, something like, you know, what impressed me even more about Once Upon a Time in the West is like, you know, you already took the great, you know, increases of, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, something that was basically unparalleled still. And then you capitalized on that even more and took it in another magnificent, you know, uh, incredible direction. Yeah. Um <laughs> For me, this is really the peak. Though. I mean, I love that movie about as much, but I I have such a history with this that I can't divorce myself from. Right, it's hard to to separate. If, again, if this is something that stuck with you from an early age and informed your, right. you know, four or five years old, how do I break? Yeah, that? and and informed your you know ability to watch and perceive films from there on. How can you you know really pick? Even if you did perceive a film as being better, which would already yeah. be kind of a hard task to find in, in terms of this. Uh, you know, it's they're at least equivalent right like i can't say that this is a better film than once upon a time in the west for a multitude of reasons but i could say they're equivalent and i and I, I mean I, I might be able to but i wouldn't tell anyone they're wrong for thinking so certainly because again on a on a scale ambition execution level they're in the same camp you know yeah. um i i just have a big preference for the music here i think that might be what it is well, and it's the same thing for me. Like, Once Upon a Time in the West score is legitimately one of my favorites. Just, like, like top top of the pile. Like, maybe, like, a Bernard Herrmann score might be able to out, you know, out-inch it just a little bit. But this for everything. I mean... Yeah, I mean, there... And this score is also in the same camp. as is, like I said, for, you know, a fistful of dollars and for a few dollars more. Or basically any any Morricone score, but these, these Western scores are like the definitive ones that you, you come to, you know, and whether you pick between the good, the bad and the ugly, or once upon a time in the West, you know, you're getting uh, incredible works either way. You know, it's, it, it basically you, you've got, a, <laughs> you just have two great films to pick between and, and, or not pick between for that matter. Why pick? Why not have both? Yeah, why why make the choice at this point? Because I, either way, for me, they're one and two, so it's not like I could say that uh, something like Once Upon a Time in the West is less, because 
I still have it above like the greatest films, like The Searchers, and you know all these ones that we've gone through that are iconic. Um, and, and with Once Upon a Time in the West, I know we're we're talking about this one a lot in comparison when we don't have to, but like I think the reason it resonates for me more is because, like I said, about that thematic aspect where it's so much about the West and about the end, and it really brings it all together in this magnificently conclusive manner. And, and I and, think for you, you like more traditional West, and this is a little yeah. bit more aggressively Italian too. Sure, yeah. I mean, th that film in particular takes a lot of inspiration and a lot of like closure from a lot of the American Westerns and the John Ford types and such. So shocked is, that it appeals This is to for me. me, like just like blowing the doors off that and being like, that doesn't matter. Let's do something new, which I really respect more, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, and what it does in, uh, I think in a lot of ways, like, you know, of course, having Clint Eastwood and Eli Wallach. Eli Wallach uh, also, uh, for those who don't know, has a great villainous turn in The Magnificent Seven. But it, it really is like the, definitive de facto Italian Western and you know people who don't care about Westerns know the good the bad and the ugly and love it as well I mean yeah it had like a big rebirth from like Tarantino saying it's his favorite movie of all time right like people got on board with this who just like genre films and of course it, it is for Tarantino like again yeah. not not only you know pervasive in his filmography but in so many people's and like we said in the beginning of the discussion here the film has transcended its own you know uh uh just core ideas and become uh, an icon in, in its own right in so many ways so many iconic lines the music is you know the most iconic western music of, of all time it, the film is inescapable in so many ways yeah i mean i this is what I think about when I think about like the early movies that form my taste. Like, um, I I just wasn't there for um, you know, for his other movies. I, they weren't there for me. Yet. I I had to uh, grow up a bit and see like what's in them. Yeah. Um, I, I watched this trilogy primarily though, and this is the one that stuck with me. And and I do think that these are great films, and particularly this one for the you know the the new western uh in you know newbie or whatever someone who wants to watch western films this is possibly the best place to start uh you know if you're not up on the older films in particular especially but even if you were like it's it's hard and i think the good the bad and the ugly is one that's going to impact and resonate with most people because it is so uh you know magnificent and you know boisterous and uh, epic and funny and adventurous and so many things Ultimately, I think we both love it a lot, and I think we did good coverage of it for now. Sure. It's it's almost like we only talked about the other two so that we could talk about this one. <laughs> it's almost like that happened. Um, just remember, there's two kinds of people in this world. Those who love the good, the bad, and the ugly, and those who love Once Upon a Time in the West. Oh.